righteousness, who are merciful, who, who are pure in heart, that those are the kind of people, the least of these, the marginalized, the oppressed, the shoved to the sides, God has laid the invitation to the kingdom on them. For everyone, this inclusivity where he says the invitation is for all to step into the kingdom way now. And what he does then is after he gives this, he says, I'm going to change the world through you. I'm going to bring the kingdom through you, the least of these, the marginalized, the oppressed. I'm bringing the kingdom through you. And then he lays out through what I'm calling 14 different triads, which we'll get into, are are the way the kingdom lives. And maybe the best way to kind of capture that um, is this word I put in your bulletin. It's called dekayasune. Right? And dekayasune is this picture of it's, um, it's the, what we translate as righteousness, or sometimes we translate it um, maybe even better as the couplet with the word justice. Okay? And so what Jesus is doing is he is bringing, he is, he is talking about his dekayasune, his righteousness, his goodness. It's the good in us that pushes out behavior. Okay? Nothing you do is accidental. It comes from somewhere inside of us that then comes out, right? We talked about this last week, that Jesus is far more interested in the internal transformation, right? He, he, he runs in to, to the Pharisees or he steps into the political and religious establishment of the day and he says, you hypocrites. He says, you're focusing on the outside when the inside's full of greed and hypocrisy and death, right? In another space, he'll call them whitewashed tombs. Right, full of dead man's bones. Like Jesus is bold and he says, you've got it wrong. Clean the inside because from the inside then we are transformed out. He uses the example of the tree and says, a good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit. And we're like, wow, Jesus is brilliant. Well, he is, right? But it's like, duh. Right? From the inside we live. From our centers, our heart, our soul, whatever we want to call it, that is where we then live. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is teaching his dekayasune, his righteousness, his justice. Right? And it's from there that we are transformed. So to illustrate this, because again, I'm going to do this um, probably every week, remind us of this, because our propensity is to turn the teachings of Jesus here into laws, which is not what Jesus is doing. Okay, we love laws. Laws make sense to us. That's why there's like 15 different law and orders, right? Um, it's because we love law. And, and I watch Law and Order, Criminal Intent, Las Vegas, San Diego, whatever it is now, right? Like we love law, okay? We love it. But that is not what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is teaching the kingdom way, how to be slowly transformed into the kind of person who lives into the kingdom. So to illustrate this, I brought this picture along with me this morning. Look at that motley crew, all right? Somewhere in there is little seventh grade Kevin. Can anyone take a guess at what number Kevin is? 44. Oh, you guys are much better than the other services. The other services were like, they were way off. Okay, now, look at number 44 there, all right? Um, first observation, probably not the quickest on the team, all right? That is um, still am not the quickest on the team, all right? Never have been. Um, never been mistaken for speedy, right? Um, but this guy right here, okay, seventh grade Kevin, I, when I was a little kid, Remember going to my high school with my dad, and I dreamed of playing basketball for Delaro High School, right? Little high school in Loomis, California. You blink, you miss it on the way to Tahoe. We have a Rayleigh's, which was huge. Um, and so that was like our big moment, right? We're on the map. People stop to gas up on the way to Tahoe. Um, but, but this little Kevin here, we would go to games. It was a high school town, so everything revolved around the high school. And I remember going to basketball games as a kid, and I was like, man, I, like, I desire to play high school basketball. Like, Coach Joe Heights, he was like this military, kind of like strong, no-nonsense guy. Um, I remember watching him. I was like, gosh, I want to play for him one day. Well, if you were to take this Kevin, 
okay? Seventh grade Kevin, not the fastest on the team, and try to put him into a varsity Delaware basketball player, it would be an impossibility and would probably end up killing me, all right? That's probably more what would happen, right? It would be an impossibility, right? And most of us tend to do this with Jesus. So what, what this Kevin understood, or at least what I learned, was that in order to, I was not the kind of person who could play basketball at the high school level right there. And so freshman year rolls around, I show up for the first day of conditioning. In our league, you weren't allowed to touch a basketball for the first two months of the season. Okay, couldn't work out in a gym, couldn't practice, any of that. And so the first two months, for five days a week, we spent an hour in the weight room, which this Kevin had never touched a weight. I didn't even know weights existed, I'm pretty sure. Right? And then we spent the second hour on the track running, which this Kevin definitely didn't know how to run, all right? I knew how to play video games, and that was about it. Right? But there was something to me that said, I want to play basketball at Delaware High School. So I committed myself to show up every single day for two months. So I will be there. I will show up because I understood that it was going to take this training, right, to get me to become the kind of person who could play basketball. So the first day I show up, Joe Heights is there. We're lifting weights, or I'm hiding in the corner trying to lift weights. And we're there, and he looks at all of us after he kind of wraps things up and says, all right, guys, let's head down. We're going to go to the track, and we're going to do a mile warm-up. And I was like, like warm-up? I was like, I've never ran a mile in my life, right? So we go down there, we head down to the track, and everyone is, is you know, running the four laps, makes a mile on a standard track, right? So they're running. I get done with lap three, and everyone else is done, and I'm like, all right, time to stretch. Let's go, right? Warm up over. So I just bail a, a lap early because when you're slow, you find ways to hide how slow you are. Um, but so I remember bailing. I remember thinking this is like, there were times in that two months where I would be running. I'd look at like the curb on the track, and I said, I could roll my ankle now, and that'd be much easier. Right? I could like <laughs> break my leg instead of having to finish running, right? But what I did is I committed. I said, I will be here every day. And after that first week, I was the only freshman that showed up every single day for two months. And when we sat down at, at, after tryouts, after that two months, and I met with my freshman coach, and we had that talk about whether you made it or not, he looked at me and he says, Kevin, the reason that I picked you to be on this team is because you're the kind of person we want in Delaware basketball. And what I had understood, or at least what I learned through that, is again, that if you'd have taken seventh grade Kevin, put me into high school basketball, I was not ready. It was an impossibility. But it was two months of training and, and sacrifice and kind of pouring my heart and trying to die out, right? Is pouring that out to say, I want to become the kind of person who can play high school basketball. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mountain is he's saying, let's train ourselves to become the kind of people who live into the kingdom now. The church, grace abounds. Some of these things that Jesus says, like love your enemy, which we get to talk about next week, is so difficult, but we see it as an impossibility because we haven't allowed transformation to take root deep in our bones. Look at this quote from uh, Dallas Willard. I quote him all the time, um, and rightfully so, but he says this. He says, is it then hard to do the things with, with which Jesus illuminates the kingdom heart of love or the things that Paul says love does? It is very hard indeed if you have not been substantially transformed in the depths of your being, in the intricacies of your thoughts, feelings, assurances, and dispositions, in such a way that you are permeated with love. Once that happens, then it is not hard. What would be hard is to act the way you acted before. He says at some point, we get so permeated with the love of God, we get so ingrained in the way of the kingdom that it is harder and it would take more intentionality to work against the way of the kingdom than it is for the way of the kingdom. Okay, that's why Jesus, later on in Matthew 6, he says this. 
He says, seek first his king or the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his dikaiosune, his something inside us that is the goodness that pushes forth behavior. He says, seek that first and all the things will be added to you. He says, when we pursue God's righteousness, God's, God's dikaiosune, his justice, his righteousness, that takes root in us. We are permeated with that and then we live from our core, Right? Um, in the mid-90s, um, there was this massive popular kind of movement that swept around. Many of you probably know about I was, uh, to reveal a bit of my age, I was in like middle school in late 90s um, and whatnot. So, so there were these little bracelets that popped up, right? Generally, they came in different colors, but the first one was black and had four letters on it that were in white that said WWJD. Right, we're familiar with that. That like exploded. It was like the coolest thing ever, right? And so, so well, I guess it was. I was a church kid, so I guess it was cool then. But uh, so I threw it on. I was like, this is awesome. Well, the whole theory behind it, right, is that you would walk around and amongst your daily life, when you found yourself in a situation you didn't know what to do, you would magically look at your wrist, I guess, and you would see WWJD and you would ask, what would Jesus do? Well, the problem with that is that I don't think that's at all what Jesus would do. I don't think Jesus would show up in a situation and ask, what should I do here? He would know because he's the kind of person who lives in the kingdom, right? The whole premise of WWJD is that we would show up in situations, we'd have this on-the-spot spirituality that in the moment I could somehow muster the courage to all of a sudden love my enemy, right? When I've hated him all week, but now I gotta, I'm going to love him now, right? Like, like, it's this whole premise that we can just show up on the spot without any transformation, any inward change, and then be given, begin to live the kingdom way. But Jesus is saying, no, there is something deeper that is going on. So last week, we talked about anger and murder and the root of that and, and reading that out a bit and, and what God is up to in that. Well, um, as I mentioned, this week, we're talking about lust, divorce, adultery, uh, marriage, and oaths. So... Um, a lot to get through. Again, a little more personal. Um, but I want to give a few disclaimers before we jump into that. Okay, I am in no way trying to cover these topics in their entirety. Okay, there are three sermons at least um, in here on these individual topics. Um, but for the sake of time, we're kind of doing a cursory view over all of them. So I'm kind of skipping a rock across all of them, hoping to touch them. Um, so in no way do I, will I explain everything. No way am I trying to say I'm explaining everything. Um, so know that ahead of time. Um, secondly, I come at these topics as a male in my late 20s, coming up on 30s, um, that has been married for seven years. I'll be married seven years in August. Uh, so we all read and come to topics from a social location. Okay, so I want to just lay that out there. This is where I come from. So I will focus primarily more on men and, and the male aspect of it because that's the lens I read them through. Um, and so women, this is very much a part of you as well, and I'll touch on that, but just know that that's the lens I see it through, okay? And then lastly, uh, grace abounds. Church, this is, it's a heavy topic. It's a heavy topic. There's no two ways about it. Um, it's thick. It's hard. I hope to challenge you, but I also hope you leave encouraged um, because, again, grace abounds in all of this. So with that, let's jump in, all right? Five, um, chapter 5, verse 27, and we'll read through verse 30 in this first section. <clears throat> Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay. If you remember last week, we talked a bit about the structure of which Jesus teaches. And what I present is that Jesus is actually speaking in a triad, not a dyad, right, where it's but, but 
um, you have heard it said, but I tell you. I think Jesus is actually offering a third element, which is the, what I'm calling or what Glenn Stassen calls the transforming initiative. And in the triad, the third element is always the focus. It is what Jesus is pointing towards, and it's going to um, be important that we keep that in mind. So the three elements, again, are traditional righteousness, a vicious cycle that that traditional righteousness, when it's abused, lends itself to. And then lastly is how do we get out of that cycle of brokenness? And that's what Jesus is offering. So keep that in mind as we break this down a bit. So the traditional righteousness that Jesus initially connects with is, uh, is this in verse 27. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's referencing the seventh commandment of the 10, Exodus um, 2014 is what he's looking at. And again, this is, we get this, right? Like, I think it was the last stat I saw was 90% of people agree that adultery is wrong, right? We can get on board with that. This is simple. We see the basics of this. And adultery, again, is, is essentially what we would define as sexual immorality outside of marriage. Okay, we tend to limit it a bit to just think it's, it's sex with someone, not your spouse. But in reality, it's sexual immorality outside of marriage. So for you non-marrieds in here, this very much relates to you as well. Okay, and what Jesus is doing is he is a beginning to shape a new sexual ethic. Okay, we get this mixed up, and this has been so abused in churches for so long um, that we, we take this topic of sex and whatnot, and we have just called it taboo, and we never talk about it. But what I want to tell you is that Jesus is affirming a positive view of sexuality. He is affirming that sex is a gift, part of God's good creation. Read Song of Solomon. But do it on your own time, all right? Because it is, it is very much pro. It is, a, it is an entire book of the scriptures about the beauty of, of marriage and sex and, and how God has gifted us with that. Okay, and as we go through that, remember that Jesus is, is doing this as a positive thing. He's saying, how is this gift I've given you designed to work? And so he begins with this traditional righteousness. You shall not commit adultery. Again, seems pretty basic, right? What does Jesus get into in the vicious cycle next? He says in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, just like anger and murder, Jesus says it wasn't the action of murder. It wasn't pulling the trigger, taking someone's life. That is the only issue. It's still an issue. Okay, he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. But he said the real problem is the anger that's pulsing through your veins that's pushing forward that murder. In the same sense, Jesus says, listen, it's not adultery per se, although it's bad, and he's, again, not abolishing but fulfilling. He's saying there's something behind it, this lustful intent that is causing this cycle of brokenness. All right, and again, this lustful intent um, or adultery in the heart, okay, a little tricky language there, but what he's using is, is, is this idea that when it, it's the lustful intent, that the gaze, maybe the second gaze that lasts a little longer, that lingers, like we know lust. Like our, our culture is kind of fueled by lust to some degree. I mean, sex has been turned into one of the like primary motivators of our economy, Right, like, like sex and lust, is, it is this, this view that, that we understand can take kind of control of our heart. It is, it, is the, it is the kind of infatuation with something that isn't ours. Okay, and I believe what the problem with lust is twofold. I think lust is primarily destructive for the one who is lusting, okay? But it's also, it's, it's harmful and destructive for the one on the other end of it, the recipient of, who may not even know that they were the recipient of. 
And the reason for both of those is that at its core, what lust does, the intent, the pursuit of something that isn't yours, right, that lust dehumanizes and degrades a human. Okay? It, is the, it is the taking of someone created in God's image who is a child of God and turning them into a commodity to be consumed for your pleasure, whether it's in the mind or physically. It is dehumanizing and degrading of another person made in the image of God. That is an issue, church. And again, this permeates our culture. But remember, it is not, right, he's very specific when he says lustful intent. Okay? He does not say that, and again, remember, he is not also laying a law, but he is also not saying that the sexual desire or the attraction is the problem. It is the lustful intent. It is the second look that lasts a little longer that allows you to begin to fantasize or let your mind run wild a bit because you're looking with the intent of sticking around for a little bit longer or whatever it is. Okay, that is the issue. Again, he is not saying that the attraction or the desire is wrong. That is a gift of God, part of God's good creation that is designed for all of us to enjoy. That desire, that attraction, but it's the moment that goes a bit longer, the moment that website sticks on your computer a bit longer, the moment you pursue it a bit further, he says that is the issue. He says essentially that that is adultery because everything is present for adultery minus the actual action and the occasion. He says your mind's on board, everything else is ready, and more often than not, when all of that is there, if the occasion were to arise, you'd walk right into it. Okay, now Jesus says that, listen, adultery, the act is bad, and he'll often, you know, almost say it's worse. But he says what's behind that, though, is the heart. He says when your heart is filled with lust, when it's filled with this desire for things that aren't yours, that have been turned, you're turning people and, and humans into something to be consumed, he says that is the cycle of brokenness. He says you've already committed adultery. He says the passion's already controlled you. It's already gone. Now, I, I, you know, as, as a youth pastor for 10 years, um, I dealt specifically with the issue of pornography with, for many, many times, right, with students. Um, it's a part of my history that I've, I've worked through and whatnot, but that is just like, like, the issue of pornography, church, is so vast. It is so, it is, it, and I believe it is part of what is kind of eroding our younger generation. I love the younger generation. I love millennials, even though everyone hates them. I think they're going to do amazing things that they already have. But I think one of the areas that is our blind spot is this issue of pornography. It's we have now allowed this lustful intent to control us a bit, and it takes over us, and it begins to invade our life and control us. Okay, here's a few, uh, here's just three statistics. The statistics are, uh, I mean, you can look up as many as you want on the topic, but here's the three I kind of pulled. The first one, uh, pornography sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. 35% of all internet downloads are pornographic. That's a lot. And then lastly, this is for you parents, and I, I truly don't want to say this in a spirit of fear, but rather to make you aware, but the average age of exposure is 11. 11. And more often than not, it's not them pursuing it. It is that, it is, is pornography finding them. In a world where you can access everything on your phone, I mean, it, it, you, there's not, a, there's not a, a site blocker in the world that will keep someone from pornography. Hear that? There isn't. It will find us. And what Jesus is saying here, again, is it's not the desire. That is the part of God's good creation in his design. And it's not even the temptation that's the issue. Right? Jesus was tempted. 
Jesus was tempted more than any of us have experienced because he withheld the temptation. So when the temptation got strong for us and we gave in, Jesus continued to resist and understood that. And so, again, it's not those things. It's how we respond to the temptation. How do we respond to the lustful intent when it hits us? And Jesus is saying it's causing this brokenness. So what what does Jesus say? Let's look at verse 29. What is the cycle or the way to transform out of this cycle of brokenness? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus is is certainly speaking in hyperbole, okay? Don't go home and cut your hand off, pluck your eye out, whatever it is, right? That's not what Jesus is getting at. Even if that was what he's getting at, and this is why I think we can certainly know, is if you sinned four times, you would end up without hands and blind, all right? And you would still be sinful. That is not what God is getting at. Okay, that is clearly not what Jesus is teaching. Please don't take it that way. But what he is doing is he is speaking with a very high level of severity. He is saying that when that lustful intent happens, if your right eye causes you to sin, not the right eye that is the problem, but that it causes sin, or the, the right hand that causes the problem, right? He's saying when that happens, if that's the case, whatever the root cause of the sin is, he says in common sense language, get rid of it. He says that's the issue. Throw your phone away. Get an old flip phone, right? Get it, don't watch that show. Don't eat lunch with that, that coworker that tends to flirt with you that you enjoy. He says, get rid of it. He says, if that's the issue, I used to tell my students all the time that nothing good happened past midnight, and they just called me old because of that, uh, which that's probably true, right? But it's like when the issue is something we can recognize, he says, Jesus says, just get, it, get rid of it. Do whatever it takes to remove that because that is how we get out of the cycle of lust and brokenness, and hurt, and pain. Have the conversation. Seek out someone who can help hold you accountable. Find a loved one to pray with you. Whatever it is, talk to your spouse. Roll over, have the conversation. Whatever it is, he says, get rid of it. He says, cut the hand off, gouge the eye out, do whatever it takes to remove the sin, because it's better that that happens, that the awkward conversation happens, so you can live into the kingdom now. And again, the word hell here is the word Gehenna. It's this picture that immediately his hearers would have, would have looked at. There was this dump outside of Jerusalem that was always on fire. It was never extinguished. That's what he's drawing them to. Okay, again, we don't have time to get into what that means eternally and all that. Okay? But he, it's not a good picture. He says your life is headed towards that brokenness if you don't root out that issue. So Jesus goes on. We all right? We breathing? Okay, let's go on. Verse 31, all right? Uh, verse 31, it says, it was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Okay, so, uh, and it goes on, we'll read, we'll read verse 32 soon. It says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, divorce, statistics say that every one of us in here have probably connected somehow to that issue. Whether you've been through that, whether it's a loved one, a family member, whatever it is, we have all been impacted by this. A divorce is a tragedy, and I want to approach it with sensitivity. Um, because, again, it is, the, divorce it was never God's intention, and it is one of the issues that it brings up so much pain and hurt. Right, but, but what Jesus is doing here is I hope to bring a bit, we can see maybe what his heart is behind it. So a little work in this as we go. Um, again, the, the traditional righteousness he, he identifies, it was, said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. Okay, Jesus is speaking from a patriarchal society, 
All right, so in a patriarchal society, men had 100% of the power. That means a woman couldn't live, couldn't survive without being attached to a man, okay? It's hard for us to wrap our heads around that because we live in a vastly different culture, thankfully. That is a good thing. But from a patriarchal society, a woman was attached, like their livelihood was based on their husband or their father. That is how they survived. That's how they had their means to live, all of that. And so this law, which Jesus is summarizing, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, write it down. You can read it at another time. But he is summarizing Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which is, is the law of God here. That's where he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. The certificate of divorce was intended, God's heart behind that law was so that women could have that kind of divorce ended so that it was officially ended, they could then go and remarry to, to be able to survive. Okay, the heart and intention of God's law is to protect the vulnerable. I don't know of another time in scripture where God doesn't, I don't know any time in scripture where God does not take the side of the vulnerable. And what the, the intention of the law, the character of God is to say that, that women need to be protected. And so he's allowing, he, he creates this law to say, protect them, give them a certificate of divorce so they can go off and then they can remarry. That's the traditional righteousness. No, where does Jesus go with this? Again, hang with me. This is thick and a bit tricky, but we'll get through it. The vicious cycle, he says in verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, so in that Deuteronomy 24, there's this phrase that um, the Pharisees were split on how to interpret it. And it was essentially the phrase that you could divorce your wife if you found any uncleanliness or indecency in your wife. So the two groups were this. There was the conservative group that believed that it was sexual immorality, which is what Jesus references here. Okay, so when he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual morality... Okay, Jesus is identifying one of the groups. The second group believed that uncleanliness meant anything that they deemed uncleanly. So if their wife burnt their toast, they could leave them. That was essentially what the Pharisees had said. They had taken a law meant to protect the vulnerable and said, hey, I don't think you're pretty enough. You're not a good enough cook. You don't know how to fold my shirt. Um, I am leaving you, all right? They had abused and made this a corrupt system that enhanced Men, it enhanced their pleasure, their lust, which I think is part of the reason Jesus follows up lust with this discussion. Okay, and so, so they had tweaked this to, to feed their own kind of good, and it made it to where they could divorce anyone for anything. So when Jesus says the vicious cycle is that, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. What Jesus is doing is he is saying that there is a permissible reason for divorce, and so he says the permissible reason, if you permissibly, like in, in the way that scripture allows or that law allows, divorce your wife, okay, then he is going to say that is okay, and we'll talk a bit more about that. But then he says if you divorce your wife for any other reason besides sexual immorality, and essentially in a non-permissible manner, then he is not recognizing that divorce. So he is then saying, okay, if I don't recognize that divorce, that means that you have made your wife commit adultery because then she's gone off where in my eyes she's not actually divorced and she's committing adultery. Now, before we get too far, we're going to look at a passage in Matthew 19 in just a second that's going to expand and broaden the reasons for divorce. Okay, remember, do not separate the character of God from his teachings. 
We tend to do that. But do not separate the character of God as a loving, forgiving, gracious God from his teachings. Okay, so Jesus is saying that if you, un- if, you do, if you divorce your wife for a reason that isn't permissible, then it's not actually a divorce, which forces the woman into adultery. And whoever, makes a divorce, um, and whoever marries a divorced woman then is then committing adultery. Now, flip to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, Jesus is going to be approached by the Pharisees, and they're going to have a relatively lengthy discourse on what is divorce. And they're, going to, they're attempting to trap Jesus. When, when, almost always when the Pharisees approach Jesus, they're not actually seeking knowledge, right? They're trying to trick them, trying to trap them, whatever it is, okay? So Matthew 19, verse 3, follow along with me. It says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You can probably assume that it's the liberal category as far as how they determined that scripture are approaching Jesus. Hey, can I divorce my wife because she burnt my toast? That's what they essentially ask. But I don't know if they had toast. That's a bad joke. Verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, in Deuteronomy 24, remember the law. It says, I can divorce them for any reason. Jesus says, you want to go there? Let's go all the way back to the original intention of marriage. He says, let's go back to Genesis, which is what he quotes there. And he says, the original intention, because again, what Jesus is doing here is a positive affirmation of the beauty and sanctity of marriage. Marriage is one of the greatest gifts God has ever given us. It is one of the most difficult and painful things too, but it is a gift in God's original design. And so God gives this command. Jesus says, let's go back to Genesis where it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother, the two shall become one flesh, so no longer they are two, but one. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. Okay, then he goes on. So he is affirming marriage in that perspective, saying that, again, that is not God's original intention. It's for the married people to work together through their entire life. And then it goes on in verse 7. This is the Pharisees speaking. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? That's the traditional righteousness that Jesus mentioned before. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for, the, uh, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, Jesus says that as they're continuing to push on this, Jesus looks at them and says, listen. He says the original intention of, God's, of, of marriage was that it would never be broken. When two men, or when two come together, that, that it will never be separated. And, and then they say, okay, but well, what about that certificate of divorce? And Jesus says this, and it's a fascinating response. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. He says, because of sin, because pain and brokenness happens, because after the fall, after God's creation was shattered and broken, because that hardness of heart is present, Moses permitted divorce. Okay, he says, essentially, or what I will translate for us is, because there are times in marriage where people experience things they should never experience. Because men don't live up to their duty as a godly husband. Because oftentimes marriages crumble and break and and people lie and cheat and brokenness happens that Moses permitted divorce. Okay, don't, don't take this as a, as like, you know, I've heard this taught so many times where where women say, I got to stick it out because my husband was, was sexually faithful, but he's abusing me. That's not what Jesus is after. 
If you are in that situation, you need out of that marriage. You need to, to be able to understand the heart of God, that he wants to protect marriage. He, he is not desiring for you to be stuck in an abusive situation, whether emotionally or physically, whatever it is. But God is saying, listen, because sin has happened, because people are broken, I will permit divorce. It is never God's intention, but he permits it. Right? And so maybe the best way to say it is this, is that the Bible never condones divorce. It never commands divorce. It only permits divorce under sexual immorality and extreme hardness of heart. It is a last resort because God's intention and hope is that marriages work and flourish and we experience the beauty of marriage. In its difficulty, in its mess, in all of its ugliness, there is so much beauty that comes from marriage. No matter how many times, and I'm grateful that I have a wife that loves me dearly and, and is so gracious to me, but I would not trade any of the arguments we've had for the beauty that I have with her. And she knows me inside and out. She knows everything about me. And that's terrifying, but also so liberating to just love her. That it's hard and it's difficult that when two sinful people come together, we will make a mess of things. You can be certain of that. And God is saying, my hope is that you will work through it, get through the pain. But that God's picture says, you will not be stuck in an abusive situation because that's not God's heart. That God is for the vulnerable. He is for marriage. So let's flip back to Matthew 5. If you're really paying attention and awake, which you're the later service, so I bet you are, you'll notice that this section is missing what we would expect to be a transforming initiative. Okay, out of the 14 triads that I identify, this is the only one that doesn't have a third element. It leaves us in the cycle of brokenness. Okay, now Matthew, the way he writes is he, there are triads all over Matthew. There's triads right here again. There's 14 of them straight through that we're working through. And all of a sudden, we come to one that's missing it. That should, for us, that should be like, whoa, that's weird. Like, where is the initiative out of this, okay? And here's what I'm going to say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a perspective from kind of the whole of Jesus' teaching. What I believe is there, I think somehow we've lost the, the transforming initiative. Okay, I just think that's, that's the case. It's a thin argument, I understand. Um, but that's kind of the argument I'm going to make. Is because when we look at what Jesus taught all throughout Scripture, when we look at what Paul taught, taught all throughout the New Testament, we're going to see the initiative out of it. So flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay, I believe what this passage is referencing um, is going to go back to Christ's teaching, which I think may have been what Jesus intended in that text. But again, I'm not saying that is the definite thing. It is a thin argument, I understand. But this is what I believe the transforming initiative out of that cycle of brokenness is. So in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 10 through 11, Paul says this. Okay, in the parentheses you see, those are Paul speaking. It wasn't me that added it on the screen or anything like that, but this is actually what Paul says. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. It's referencing back to something Jesus taught. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. I believe that with the, the transforming initiative out of the brokenness of like adultery and divorce and all of that that shatters marriage is to be reconciled. Okay, he says again, very plainly, Paul says, the wife should not separate. He says, the goal of marriage is not to end in divorce, to not end in separation. He says, but if it happens, don't remarry. Because if you remarry while you're separated, you're committing adultery. He says, instead, be reconciled. Again, this doesn't discount that there are permissible reasons for divorce. But he is saying instead, the heart of God, the hope of, of Jesus for marriage is that we go and be reconciled. I mean, is that not right in line with Jesus' teaching? 
Okay, so again, whether he said it in the Sermon on the Mount or not, I believe it is in line with Jesus' heart. It's clearly what Paul is saying in the scriptures here is that we are to fight for our marriages. That means that, that, that when, when argument, when things start to crumble, you have the conversation. You roll over and say the two hardest words sometimes to say and say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. And you begin to, you find counseling, you seek the, the, the inside of loved ones, you do everything in your power to be reconciled, but if it isn't reconcilable, he permits it. He says, fight for your marriage, be reconciled, do whatever it takes to pursue that, but if it doesn't happen, then that's permissible, but it is the last option. It is the extreme case. He says, you are to fight for your marriage fight for your marriage. The Bible never commands, condones divorce, but it allows it. It allows it. So let's take a deep breath again. All right, one more. Here we go. Matthew chapter 5. Remember the heart of God is for us, not against us. It's so important to keep that in mind. So in, in after he speaks of lust, he speaks of divorce, he's going to get into this next topic on O's or keeping our word. And he says this in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. But shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Okay, traditional righteousness. Let, it, let what you say, or uh, he says, uh, again, you've heard it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely. But perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Essentially, he's saying that the rule is to keep your word, right? Again, a common sense teaching. Jesus, in, in a world, in the first century world, where oaths had a much higher value than they do for us, we live in a client contract world, okay, where we sign on the dotted line and then we can trust someone. Um, Jesus is essentially saying, you should just be able to trust people in the kingdom. He says that the way of the kingdom is that you say what you mean and you mean what you say. Then he's going to give us the, the vicious cycle, the brokenness that occurs. He says it this way in verse um, 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus is saying, transport all the way back to kindergarten when you're on the playground, that you shouldn't say, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I, that is what Jesus is getting at. He is saying, you don't swear on anything else because when you swear on crossing your heart hoping to die or, or if you swear on Jerusalem or heaven or earth or your own head, he says, when you do that, you are devaluing your very word. You are devaluing your commitment. He says, instead, just be honest, right? That's what we see in the Transforming Initiative at the last one in verse 37. It says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything else comes from evil. Okay, Jesus is saying that the, the way of the kingdom, the way that we live is where people can trust us at our word because we're honest. We don't cheat people with half-truths. We don't stand before people in marriage and say that we will fight for our marriage and then not. He is saying that you know, one, of, one of the joys of my job is, is getting to perform weddings. And, and, and one of the most powerful moments for me is when I stand there and I say things like, you know, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. And they get to say, I do, and everyone cheers, and you're all happy. Like, that moment, though, is a moment where you enter into the ugliness of marriage. Think about it, right? Like, when you say for richer or poorer, for better or worse, who here has ever experienced the worse of marriage, right? We've experienced the better. We've experienced the worse. 
And what they stand there is they then say that. And again, Jesus isn't speaking specifically in marriage when he speaks of these oaths, but I'm using that because that's the way we're going with this. Is he is saying, listen, when you stand there, when you make that commitment, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He said, live honestly. It is so liberating to live honestly. To not have to hide things, to not live with, with shady business deals and whatever it is. It's, it is freeing to live your word. Okay, my brother, who is four years older than me, um, I also have a sister who's six years older than me. Um, when he was a kid, one of the things that my dad taught us is that we never hit girls. Okay, that was like, he ingrained that. You don't hit girls, okay? Uh, he'd probably let us fight boys if the circumstances were there. Um, I'm giant now, so I'm sure he'd let me. Um, but he says, you don't hit girls. Uh, well, one day, my brother, being the guy he is, he hit my sister, all right? Now, me and my brother, we were a mess, right? My sister was perfect. She was the angel. Uh, my parents endured me and my brother. Uh, but one day, he hit my sister. So my mom sends him to his room, says, you know, Vic, go into your room, wait till your dad gets home. So he's in there the whole time. My dad comes home from work and marches right in there, sits down with my brother, Vic, and he says, Vic, I heard you hit your sister. Is it true? And he goes, yep. He looks at him and he says, do you know the punishment for that? He goes, yep. So he says, all right, get over my knee. So he gets over my dad's knee. He spanks him. My, my brother and I both are super stubborn, so we, like, wouldn't cry at all. We, like, bite our tongue until it's bleeding not to cry, right? So he spanks him, and then he sits my brother up, and he looks at my brother, and he goes, was it worth it? My brother goes, yep. <laughs> now, that is a horrible analogy if you expand it out further and saying, like, whatever, you can do whatever you want as long as you're honest. Clearly, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but what, what, what I want to draw from that is that my brother, in that moment, knowing the circumstances, knowing the consequences, looked my dad in the eye and said, yep. <laughs> like, he knew what it was, but he was honest. And what Jesus is calling us to is this rigorous honesty, because honesty creates trust. And no community can function without trust. No marriage can function without trust, not for long at least. It certainly can't flourish. But he says when this new kingdom, this new way, this new people of God go out into the world that are to be a blessing for everyone else, he says you must be a people who can be trusted, that your yes is yes and your no is no, and we mean that. He says that all relationships are founded on trust. He says that is the way of the kingdom. So church, if you're sitting here, and, and again, I know it's heavy, I can feel it in the room, because all of this, lust, adultery, divorce, all of it, when Jesus brings it into the realm of the heart, it equals the playing field. We all have experienced this. Every single one of us in here deals with that gaze that lasts a little longer, that look that lingers. All of us have dealt with things where we have caused brokenness in our relationships. All of us have broken our word. And my message for you this morning, if, if you are sitting here and you're the one who's like, man, I am addicted to pornography. I can't figure out a way out of it. I'm stuck in this cycle of brokenness and pain. My message to you is that God blesses you. God is with you. He is for you and he is not against you. And he wants to use you to transform the world for the kingdom of God. Now go. Cut off the hand, gouge out the eye, do whatever it takes to leave that lust. He begins with the affirmation of blessing. I am on your side regardless of what happens, regardless of what you've done. I am here and I want to change the world through you. Now go. If you're sitting here and your marriage is crumbling and you, you guys are, are stuck in this cycle of brokenness and you don't know how to get out and, and you've recognized that you've caused brokenness but it seems to be perpetuated and, and you're at your wit's end, my message is that God blesses you, that he is for you. 
He is, you are deeply loved beyond anything you could imagine. He is for you. Now go and be reconciled. Go and fight for your marriage. Go and seek counseling, seek prayer, seek a loved one. Do whatever it takes to fight for that reconciliation. And if you're sitting here and you continually are stuck in this cycle of deceiving people with your word, filled with half-truths, of breaking trust, whatever, it's shady business deals, whatever it is, if that's you and you're stuck in that, God blesses you. He is for you. He is not against you. He wants your flourishing. You are deeply loved. Now go and let your yes be yes and your no be no. Church, the grace of God is on all of us as we struggle to be transformed. They're practices. They're not laws. They're things we're working on, but we go with the diligence to say that the kingdom offers a new way of life here and now out of the cycles of brokenness, so we go in that. So church, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, as we uh, close our time, Lord, we, we come ready for communion, Lord, the, the ultimate reconciliation. But God, your heart is for us to be reconciled into people of the kingdom. And so, God, help us this morning. Help me. Help my friends in front of me, Lord, that we would be able to humbly come before you and say, God, we need help. God, we need help. So enter our lives. Renovate the spaces, the dark areas in our life that we see and even the ones we don't see. And may you give us the courage to take whatever that step is to, 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 more, to better transform ourselves into to the kingdom way. So God, help us with that because we need your help. And we say we love you and we try to mean that, Lord, but help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Earlier this week um, on campus, I was studying a passage from the book of James. Um, and, and if you've never studied the book of James alongside the Sermon on the Mount, uh, go do it. It's awesome to see the ways God, uh, or the ways James and, and, uh, the, and the authors of the two books and the Holy Spirit pair the themes together. Uh, so I, I just want to read some of this and then, then you'll see that some of the same tensions we're talking about in the Sermon on the Mount are present in James. This is this pa- the passage we studied from James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire what you do not have, so you kill, you covet. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, let anyone Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world